Chapter 11 of A Soldier's Letters to Charming Nellie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dale Latham. A Soldier's Letters to Charming Nellie by J.B. Polly. Chapter 11. After Chancellorville. Camp near Richmond, May 10, 1863. The Battle of Chancellorville has been fought and won, but it has cost us the life of Stonewall Jackson. It is the only great battle General Lee has fought without Longstreet. McClellan, Pope, McClellan again, Burnside and Hooker have each pitted against our peerless chieftain, who will be next is both an interesting and vexed question with us Confederates. Confident of the superiority of our commander over the very best material the Yankees can find, we prefer that he should meet a foeman worthy of his steel. But while there is a little credit to be gained, either by army or commander, in opposing such vainglorious boasters as Pope, Burnside, and Hooker, there are more rations, and these are getting to be a consideration of no small importance. Why we cannot be better and more regularly supplied is a problem beyond our solution. Perhaps we are expected to live off of the enemy. If so, we protest. When fighting ceases to be a matter of pure, self-sacrificing patriotism and degenerates into a mere business, we Texans will ask discharges. We are getting homesick anyway, and nothing in the world increases the severity of that complaint more than hunger. Apropos to nothing, apparently, except the communings of his own inner man, a comrade said the other day, I wish to God I was home. Oh, yes, I replied. You want to see the girl you left behind you, don't you? No, indeed, he blurted out. But I want something to eat, and, hungry myself, I unanimously acquiesced in the sentiment. It is not so much at the quantity of the rations we grumble as at the intolerable sameness of bread and meat. Such a limited variety gives us, by rule of permutation, only two changes. If coffee were added to the menu, we could have nine and if sugar also, no less than 24. As Bill Calhoun says, this thing of having bread for the first course one day and the meat the next, and so on, vice versa, and alternately ad infinitum et nauseum, has an excessively depressing effect upon a fellow's patriotism. The writing of Bill reminds me of his generosity at Suffolk, where... In order to accomplish any good, our men would have had to be amphibious. One day, while the brigade was there, General Hood halted for a moment at the fort's camp to speak about some matter to Colonel Key. While talking, the general noticed Bill standing a little way off, and, knowing his character, with a view to sport, said in a voice loud enough to be heard by the whole regiment, Detail an officer and twenty-five of your best men, Colonel, and order them to report to me at once in my quarters. I have set my heart on one of those gunboats down on the river, and I know that many men of the 4th can easily get it for me. 
Bill heard and accepted the challenge. Stepping to the side of Hood's horse and laying one hand on the animal's neck, while the other he touched the brim of his hat in respectful salute to the rider, he said, Now look a here, General. If you've just got to have a gunboat, whether or no, speak out like a man and the 4th Texas will buy you one. But we don't propose to fool with any of them down yonder in the river. They said the darn things are loaded, and besides, there are only a few of us fellers can swim. Not being with the brigade at Suffolk, I can tell you little of its performances there. I was more pleasantly engaged hunting for rations and forage in the section of North Carolina lying near the coast between the Pasquatank and the Chowan Rivers, where the only obstacle to rapturous enjoyment of life was the invariable, monotonous diet of salted shad. Intensely southern in sentiment, and within the Yankee lines quite long enough to delight in the sight of a Confederate soldier, the people were lavish in their hospitality to us, and the young ladies everything that was kind and charming. But while at first almost captivated, the exclusive fish diet demanded such watchfulness and operated so adversely against any indulgence of naturally aesthetic temperament that I sensibly acquired the habit of looking more carefully for bones than for aught else. Indeed, towards the last, I not only began to feel fishy, but imagined that my entertainers regarded me with fishy stares. These, however, may have been caused by, by my strict and undeviating adherence to the soldierly principle of eating everything in sight. A course in which, by the way, I was ably seconded, if not outdone, by my comrades for the time being, Captains Jimmy Littlefield, Jimmy Rust, and Walter Norwood, each of whom, and especially the last named, is a trencherman of unsurpassed capacity, spirit, and persistence. Where we are going now is a question concerning which a, a private soldier can only surmise. Camp rumors saith that the time has come to offer the Marylanders another chance to flock to the Confederate standard. But of the truth of the report, or even of the probability of a movement at all, I must absolutely refuse to vouch. While protesting vigorously against the inaction which denies me access to the Federal Commissary Department, I have long ago gratified my once inordinate thirst for gore and glory. Sometimes I feel inclined to echo the desire expressed by Jackson's man, who, reprimanded by his general for running out of the fight like a baby, broke into a big boo-hoo and exclaimed between sobs, I don't care what you say, sir, but I wish I was a baby, and a gal baby at that. Not for the world would I cast the faintest shadow of a slur upon the manly characters of my comrades here in the Army of Northern Virginia, but we are all human beings, and I honestly believe there is a whole lot of the bravest and most gallant of them who would at times be glad of a chance to return to babyhood, even at the risk of a change of sex. With their easy access to Europe, the plagued Yankees have such an ability and habit of outnumbering us 
that we are not prompt to join in any severe censure of the fifth texas irishman who sent out on the skirmish line came back on a treble quick and when told by his lieutenant i'd rather die mike than run out of a fight in such a cowardly manner fixed upon the officer a withering sarcastic look and replied the hell you would lieutenant the hell you would so when there was only a skimmish line of us boys and two regiments and a battery of them still their numbers furnish a certain class of our soldiers with grand opportunities for killing charlie hume of the fifth tells an amusing story about a member of that regiment whose name he will not mention but whom i shall call dick dick is something of a braggart and is wonderfully assisted at times by his vivid imagination on the day after the yankees recrossed the rappahannock at fredericksburg hume found him snugly and safely ensconced behind a huge rock on the south side of the river apparently busy in death-dealing warfare what are you doing here dick inquired hume doing repeated dick as if surprised being asked so foolish a question what am i doing well sir i'm killing yankees if you must know don't you see those fellers over yonder on the side of the hill i've been set here by my lone self and killed every son of a gun of em hume looked and sure enough there on the hillside half a mile away were twenty or more bodies dressed in blue lying silent and still but while he was wondering at such wholesale destruction of human life and framing a suitable compliment to the fell destroyer at his side first one then another of the presumed dead rose to his feet and picking up gun and accouterments sauntered carelessly up the hill without once glancing back to indicate that he was aware of having been shot at hume's wonder and admiration evaporated instanter but when he turned to apprise his companion of the fact and suggested that the corpses were a little too lively to be those of dead men dick was out of sight and hearing <laughs> to make honors easy between me and dick i must relate a joke that i can now laugh at but for obvious reasons personal to myself have carefully concealed from my comrades while moving from winchester to fredericksburg last fall i straggled one morning and about nine o'clock knocked at the front door of a handsome residence on the orange plank road it was opened by a hospitable old lady whose first inquiry was whether i'd been to breakfast conscience prompted an affirmative but truthful answer but appetite overruled it and i replied in the negative and full reward was ushered into a spacious dining room and delivered over to the tender mercies of two young ladies while my hostess gave necessary orders to the cook one of these girls was texan and both were so entertaining and witty that i was at once put fairly on my mettle joining forces with the fair texan in defense of our state against the jocular but vigorous attacks of the equally fair virginian after a long lingering breakfast of fried chicken hot biscuit fresh butter potato coffee we adjourned to the sitting room where two old gentlemen the host and a visitor were keeping themselves warm before a bright wood fire 
Texas, being still the subject of conversation, the right of southern states to secede was incidentally adverted to, and, strengthened wonderfully by the breakfast, encouraged by the presence and bright smiles of my Texas compatriot, and foolishly presuming upon the ignorance of the gentleman, I boldly asserted that Texas had a right to secede superior to that of any other state. Ahem, said the host, straightening himself up in his chair and looking at me with the air of a man ready for an argument. Upon what fact, sir, do you base that claim? Surprised by the prompt challenge and disconcerted by the intelligent look of my interrogator, I forgot the reason generally advanced that Texas was an independent republic when she entered the Union and answered, Upon the well-known fact, sir, that when Texas became a state of the Union, she expressly reserved the right to secede whenever she chose. I spoke so confidently that the Texas girl gave me an admiring look and an encouraging smile. But to my dismay, my antagonist returned to the charge. Ahem, ahem, said he. Really, sir? I fail to recall any such reservation, although I was a member of Congress from the time annexation was first proposed until it was consummated. And then, as if determined to rout me, horse, foot, and dragoon, he turned to the other old fellow, saying, You are my colleague in Congress, Judge. Do you recollect any such reservation? No, sir, I do not replied the judge emphatically. I recall nothing of the kind. Our young friend is certainly mistaken, for I distinctly remember. But I was too utterly vanquished to care to listen to reminiscences, especially when the Virginia girls seemed to take keen delight in my discomfiture, and the Texas made to have lost faith in me. So, seizing my hat and bidding the party a rather hasty and awkward adieu, I made my exit vowing to myself never again to take part in political discussion without first learning how many of the persons present had been members of Congress. End Chapter 11 Recording by Dale Latham